Well, live long enough in this world and uh, you're going to see many examples of bad people doing well in life. Uh, Live long enough, you'll see wicked people get away with terrible things and even prosper from them, right? In fact, I remember, uh, I think it was Vincent, maybe Thomas in one of the Bible survey classes recently mentioned a, a story of this, an example of this from one of the kings of Israel. In this particular story, this king, uh, as he was out in his palace and he looks and he sees this beautiful vineyard next to his palace and he says, I, I want that. And so he goes to the owner of the vineyard and he offers to buy the vineyard or trade for it. And the, the owner says, no, 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 I can't do that. And it wasn't because he wanted more money, but this particular owner had felt like it would not be honoring to the Lord to sell this property that God had given to his family and that it would dishonor God and his Uh, fathers if he were to sell this land and so he said no i can't do it well the king got very upset and he goes home and he whines to his wife who herself was was a very evil woman and so she says oh honey don't worry about it i'll i'll take care of it for you so what she does is she gets two wicked men to falsely accuse the owner of that vineyard of blaspheming god and the king and so of course under the mosaic covenant that blasphemy Uh, was worthy of death. And so the elders of the city took him out, stoned him to death. And then to make sure that uh, his sons did not inherit the land, this wicked woman made sure that they were killed. And so this king inherits the land. He's, He's all excited and happy. And you probably have heard of these two individuals. The king's name was Ahab. The queen was Jezebel. We find the story in 1 Kings chapter 21. And you know, every time I think about this story, I get so angry. I think here's this guy, he's just trying to be faithful, he's working hard every day, and then this king who who has more than enough wants his property, and the man ends up losing his sons, his property, and his life at the hands of this wicked king. And what's worse, Ahab seems to get away with it, at least for a time. And I guess I wouldn't shouldn't be so surprised really, right? We've seen examples of this all through history, don't we? Where the Um, government corruption, the rich oppressing the poor, the powerful taking advantage of the weak, murder, rape, violence, oppression, greed, cover-ups, evil rulers, and then those who are the innocent ones who are trying to live honorably, they seem to be the ones that suffer, right? Is this resonating? We've seen this, right? Many examples of this. And we wonder at times, how can this be? How can a world that's created by God, how can this God allow such things to happen? It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. Have you ever felt this frustration? Have you experienced this tension? And maybe not even just in things we see out there, but maybe situations have happened in your life where bosses or those in authority over you or others have taken advantage of you, maybe in terrible ways, and they seem to get away with it. They seem to be even doing well. Well, the author of Psalm 73 had a similar struggle. And I wanted to take us there this morning to look at his struggle, not only to see uh, what the situation was and why he struggled, but how he dealt with it. So if you aren't there already, please look with me at Psalm 73 in verse 1. Let me read the first three verses with you. A Psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps almost slipped. Verse three, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity 
of the wicked. Now let's stop there. He's giving an introduction, right? We learn here that Asaph is the author of this psalm. He's the poet. Uh, This was a man, a, a godly man, who was appointed by David to be one of the leaders in temple worship. And here Asaph begins this psalm with an emphatic declaration. He says, surely, certainly, without a doubt, God is good to those who love him. But then Asaph says this, but you know, there was a time in my life I almost slipped up. There was something that happened that caused me to stumble. Notice he says in verse 2, basically, that we know God is good, but there's this time where I almost plunged into the dark abyss of doubting God. I almost walked away. Now, what is it that would cause such a godly, mature believer to even, to even contemplate giving up on his faith and walking away? Well, notice what he says in verse 3. I was what? Envious of the wicked and the prosperity of the proud. Now, before we criticize Asaph too harshly, we have to remind ourselves we can think this way as well, can't we? We too can wonder, how can such a God allow the wicked to succeed? How can a just God, a good God, allow the corrupt rulers or businessmen or immoral athletes or dishonest lawyers or God-hating entertainers, evil justices, my sinful neighbor, my wicked family member, how can he allow them to not only get away with their sin, but even to prosper in it, to succeed in it? You see, Asaph's struggle was not just theological. It was also personal. Because he's asking here and he's struggling with this fact that how can these people get away with their sin? How can they be prospering? And I am not. That's the little twist here. What's the real problem here? The wicked succeeding or is it that Asaph was envious of the wicked's success? That's what he confesses here, isn't it? In verse 3. He was not so so much struggling with God's justice as he was struggling with his own discontentment. That was his problem. And it's the same for us. One of the reasons I I love this psalm so much and wanted to bring it to you this morning was I think discontentment is one of the major struggles that every believer faces to some degree, and many of us don't even realize it, especially in a country like this. You know, the discontentment in my own heart was so exposed when I go to places like Pakistan and I complain about certain things, (laughs) things that these folks deal with every day. And I think, man, Tim, you have a discontent heart. And honestly, I think as American Christians, this is a big area of struggle that that perhaps some of us have not really even thought about. I mean, look at that season that we're in right now, right? Sometimes Christians, you know, I think we expect things to be good, but then we experience trials and difficulties and challenges, some of them very difficult. And we can be tempted to think, you know, how is it that I have to go through these things? And and that guy over there, he doesn't even believe in God. And look at how his life is going. Or this family member that they're not facing all these same challenges that that we have in these trials. And life seems pretty good for them. So we need to hear the testimony of our friend Asaph this morning. Again, not only in in why he struggled with this, but in what he learned about how to be content no matter what. 
And in Psalm 73, we're going to look at, learn three principles that we must apply, understand, and apply if we are to, to, to have lasting contentment, true lasting contentment. And the first principle is this. The first thing we learn from Asaph's testimony in Psalm 73 is to beware of the rut of discontentment. Beware of the rut of discontentment. Benjamin Franklin once said, Contentment makes poor men rich, while discontentment makes rich men poor. I think he's right. And this is where Asaph found himself. He was in the rut of discontentment. Look at verse 3 with me again. He says, I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, that word prosperity is not just focused on, on financial wealth or possessions. It's actually the, from the Hebrew word shalom. It's the idea not only of, of, uh, of blessing, uh, physical blessing, but also satisfaction, peace, contentment, security. And he's looking at the wicked and he's saying, man, they have all these things that, that, that really, I thought this was God's people was supposed to be blessed in this way. How can these wicked people be given all of those things and have such peace? And then in verses 4 to 11, he he goes into these vivid pictures of how he was viewing the wicked and what was happening in their lives. Look with me at verse 4. He he says there are no no pains in their death and their body is fat. You know, basically that the wicked go through life and they don't seem to have any problems. Plenty of food, plenty of provision. Verse 5, he says, they're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued by mankind. And you can see sort of how his discontentment is warping his thoughts here, right? He's kind of seeing everything. Oh, the wicked are doing so well. He thought the arrogant did not have the same kind of burdens as the rest of us. And verse 6, he describes them as, as wearing pride like a necklace, like it's something they show off. He also says the garment of violence covers them. That they're so steeped in evil and and oppression and violence that it's like clothing that they wear. It's all you see. And then in verse 7, he describes their eyes like bulging. And what he meant by that is is this idea of they see something and they want it. So it's like their eyes are popping out of their head. And they, they want everything and they get it. At least in Asaph's mindset at this point. And what makes it worse, he says in verse 8, is that they mock and arrogantly oppress. It says they mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. Their arrogance, prideful talk is so great, in fact. Verse 9, he says, they've set their mouth against the heaven, heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. It's like these guys just boast openly before God and they have, they have no compunction not to do that at all. Verse 10, he says... Therefore, his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. Again, it's this idea of the influence of the wicked and all this boastful things they say and these terrible things they do and how they influence others in their culture. Sounding a little bit like something we're familiar with today. Boy, this resonates with us. And they, others around them drink in their wicked speech like water. So these vivid pictures. But he's trying to convey this idea of the wicked just go about doing whatever they want. And there seems to be no consequences. And they have this blessing and prosperity and peace and joy. And then in verse 11 is the kicker. The height of their arrogance, they say this. How does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? I can do whatever I want. And God, if there is a God, he doesn't see, he doesn't care. Again, does this resonate with our culture today? 
Here in verses 4 to 11, I just rushed through it quickly because it's just several images, this graphic picture of how Asaph is viewing the wicked and their success and their prosperity. And then we come to verse 12. Look there. Asaph gives an emphatic summary statement. Behold! Again, whenever you see that in uh, the Psalms, that's like a, hey, stop here. Whatever you're doing, stop and listen. This is important. He says, behold, take a good look. This is what the wicked are like, he says. Always at ease, they have increased in wealth. And I think Asaph is giving sort of these exaggerated pictures, and many of them, just to convey, I think, what he's feeling there, which is this idea of how unbelievable all this is to him. We don't know if it's a particular event or if he's just surveying a general situation over time, but he's looking at these things and he's seeing those who he feels are are wicked and evil as being prosperous and successful. So Asaph is basically saying, hey, God, what's going on here? How can you be allowing these things? How can they be getting away with it? Verse 13. This is again, Asaph opens up his own heart and reveals what's really going on here. Notice he says in verse 13, surely, and again, this is emphatic, surely without a doubt, he says, in vain, I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. And I've been, I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. (laughs) So it's bad enough. He says that the, the wicked seem to be getting away with what they're doing and even doing well in it. Here I am. I'm, I'm trying to obey the covenant. I'm trying to keep the law, keep myself pure, follow the commandments, make the sacrifices, uh, flee immorality and greed, try to be grateful. And look what's happening to me. It's not the wicked who are suffering. I am. I'm the one being tormented, not them. They are succeeding, but I am not. And then here's why he almost slipped away. This is why he almost walked away from trusting God. His heart was full of envy. His heart was full of envy. His problem was not whether God was just, as we mentioned a moment ago. His problem was his own discontentment again, like Asaph, we can fall into this same trap of envy, coveting, being discontent. Do you ever question why someone else gets something that you don't? Do you ever have the thought that you don't deserve your present circumstances? That what's happening to you is just not fair? Do you ever think that if your circumstances were better, then you would be happy and content? Oh, my husband doesn't show me love or meet my needs, but her husband does. Oh, my wife, she's so unkind, so disrespectful, always nagging me, but but his wife doesn't do that. Oh, my children are such a burden, but oh, that family has such nice kids. Oh, why am I stuck with this job? And that guy has a great job. Or how could I lose my job? And that guy over there gets to keep his. Why am I sick all the time? Why do I have all these health problems? And that family doesn't. How could I lose a child? They get to keep theirs. Why can't I have that kid, that house, that marriage, that job, that life that they have? Why can't I be tall and handsome? Sorry, that was just a personal struggle. (laughs) 
like Bruce. But brothers and sisters, seriously, we have to be aware of the rut of discontentment. It is so easy to slide in. It is so easy to get stuck. And not dealing with it will prove dangerous to your own soul. Think of those examples in Scripture of those who were discontent of wanting something else and the consequences that came from it. Eve, Achan, David, Ahab. They saw something, they wanted it, they took it, and terrible consequences came about. That danger is there for each one of us. And Asaph here was getting sucked into the same rut of discontentment to the point that, he, again, he almost walked away from God. And so we too must be aware of that rut. We must be able to recognize it and know that it's always there lurking. And what if we do slip into it? What if we do find ourselves struggling with discontentment? What if we do see ourselves envying? What do we do about it? Well, that brings us to our second point. To beware of the rut of discontentment, we must know the root of discontentment. Know the root of discontentment. Where does it come from? Why is it there? Well, look at what Asaph tells us in verse 21. Oh, such great insight here. As Asaph reveals his own struggles, he says in verse 21, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. You see here how he describes his own heart. It says it was embittered. That means to be sour and that he was pierced within. Literally, his, his kidneys were being stabbed. And here we find in what Asaph says, an important understanding of the root of discontentment. And it is found in the forms of those two verbs, embittered and pierced. I want to get a little bit technical here for a minute because it's important. Those words in the Hebrew are actually in the reflexive form. Why does that matter? Why is that important? Well, reflexive has the idea that the person is doing the action to himself. So what Asaph is really saying here, I embittered my own heart. I pierced my own kidneys. I am the one who did this to myself. It didn't happen to him. It happened because of him. And we can't miss this, brothers and sisters. Asaph is telling us here that his own discontentment was self-inflicted. Did you catch that? He did it to himself. He embittered his own soul. He pierced his own heart. And some of you may not like what I am about to say, but you need to hear it. Because like Asaph, if you are discontent... It's because you have embittered yourself. You're responsible for it. Because your discontentment is not because of your lazy or unloving husband. Your discontentment is not because of your disrespectful or nagging wife. Your discontentment does not come from your rebellious kids, from your strict parents, from your selfish siblings, your in-laws. You're not discontent because you don't have enough money or because of inflation or because of the situation in the government. It's not the government policies. It's not the liberal thinking about there. That's not why you're discontent. It's not because of your church leaders or your bad health or your present circumstances. These are not the source of your unhappiness. The reason we are discontent is rooted in our own hearts. 
Because listen, God has ordained. He has chosen the circumstances you are in. Right? We believe in a sovereign God, don't we? Amen? Even in the hard times? He's decided for you to be single or married. He's ordained for you to have that spouse or children or job or living situation. And the question is this. Are you content with his decision? I know many of you are facing difficult struggles right now. God has allowed for these things to take place. Are you struggling with discontentment? Or are you recognizing this is from the Lord? Why do we get bitter or depressed or angry or unhappy? Because oftentimes our expectations are not being met. We're discontent. Someone in this situation, their focus is on others and how others may or may not be meeting their expectations or what they want. And so often the person just doesn't see it. So often we don't see the problem is not outside of ourselves. It is within ourselves. We don't see the root of our own discontentment is our own heart because we have the wrong focus. Notice Asaph here in the first part of the psalm, verses 3 to 16. The, the type of pronouns he uses here, it's very interesting. You see the emphasis? He repeats over and over. They, them, their, I, me, my. Where's his focus? No mention of God in the first part of the psalm, except the very beginning. Asaph's ultimate problem was he left God out of the picture. His focus was only on himself. And what others were getting and what he was not. What others were receiving and what he did not. Ultimately, brothers and sisters, the root or the source of discontentment is too high a view of self and too low a view of God. Discontentment has everything to do with what I want to make me happy and fulfilled. And when my focus is on others and on myself, On my expectations, on my circumstances, you know what? Those expectations will never be met. Who was it that said, was it um, Howard Hughes? One of the rich billionaires that when he was asked on his deathbed, you know, what do you want? He said, one dollar more. It's like Asaph was saying, eyes bulging, just wanting everything. Never being fulfilled. And again, that's why changing your circumstances will not fix your problem. Did you hear me? Changing your circumstances isn't going to fix your problem. It may fix a problem, but it won't fix the problem. We need to understand the problem is not with those things outside of us. And that's exactly where Asaph came to realize. He said, I embittered my own heart. I pierced myself as I was looking at these things happening around me, as I was looking at what was happening or not happening to me. I embittered my own heart. I realized I'm the problem, not the situation around me. But what brought about that change? How could a guy who was in that rut, how did he climb out of that? How was he able to see that? Well, that brings us to our third point this morning. 
The psalm tells us here, beware of the rut of discontentment and know the root of discontentment. Thirdly, take God's route to true contentment. Okay, I know Thomas just said Route 66, but you can also pronounce it route, and it's kind of makes it's better for the outline, okay? Rut, root, route, all right? So we're going to go with route. But take God's route to true contentment. Look at verse 17, and here's where everything changes. Verse 17, Asaph says, Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You've taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish You've destroyed those who are all, all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Wow, what a different attitude. I mean, that's a total 180 from how things started here. How did that happen? Well, it all starts with the very first word of verse 17. You guys see it there? What's the word? Until. Just two little letters in Hebrew, by the way. But that little word is the hinge upon which this psalm turns. Because it is at that point, right? Asaph, he's caught in his own self, a trap of selfish discontentment. He's, he's spiraling. He's, he's contemplating doubting God, losing his faith altogether. He, he's convinced life isn't fair. He's lost in this pit of disappointment until. Until. Until what? Well, that little word until, it's like, you know, a small rudder on a large ship. That's where everything turns. Everything changes. And the until is this. It's like the key that opens the door here for us in this psalm. It was hinted at earlier. The issue is this. Asaph was spiraling down until he got his focus in the right place. Really, his focus on the right person. And it wasn't himself. And it wasn't those around him. Where did his focus turn to? People, let me hear you. On, on God. Yeah, I know it sounds simple, but that's it. That's the answer. We get so caught up in what's happening to us in our situations. And again, I know some of our circumstances can be very hard. It's not like, oh, <laughs> I just got told I had cancer. Oh, well, you know. I mean, that, that's not what we're talking about here. I understand some of our situations are very hard. But you know what? If we stay focused on ourselves and on others, well, that guy doesn't have cancer. And he's not even a Christian. Well, that guy isn't suffering any health issues. Here I am, a young dad with children, and I have this diagnosis. This isn't fair. We get our eyes focused in the wrong place. And then we spiral. But here, Asaph, we see such a change in him. Why? Asaph shows us here the, the, the route to true contentment 
is to move our focus to God and to maintain our focus on God. Notice verse 17. He says, until what? What's the next? Until I came into the sanctuary of God. Ah, that's where it changed. Now, in Asaph's day, God's house was a 400-year-old tent that had been built in the days of Moses. And that's what they had, right? The people of Israel had taken around the desert and then it landed, ended up in Jerusalem. David had set it up on the Temple Mount, what became the Temple Mount, Mount Moriah. And that's what Asaph's talking about here. This is where God's people gathered. This is where God's people met, where they sang the songs, some of them which Asaph had written. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was located, the representation of God's very presence among His people. And this is the place where Asaph's heart was changed. Notice what he says. We read through verses 23 to 28. Let me just pick out a few statements here that reveals how Asaph's focus changed. Verse 23, I'm continually with you. Verse 23, you hold my right hand. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? Verse 25 again, besides you I desire nothing on earth. Verse 26, God is the strength of my heart. Verse 26 again, God is my portion. Verse 28, the nearness of God is my good. The Lord God is my refuge. Do you see the change in his focus? It's no longer they, them, me, my, I, is it? It's him, he, God, you. First half of the psalm, all he could think about was the wicked and how they prospered and what they got away with. But now here in the second part of the psalm, all he can talk about is God. Who God is, what he has done, our own need for him. His desire for God had been rekindled. It had been stirred up. His focus had changed. And we can't miss the point here. How did it get stirred up? How did it get rekindled? Where did he go? He went where God's people were. He went where God's word was sung. He went where God's truth was spoken of. You know, I'm thinking that day probably Asaph would have rather stayed home and wallowed in his discontentment, right? Because when we feel bad, we don't feel like going to church. Most of us, maybe. There's a few godly ones among us, maybe. But most of us are like, I don't feel like it. I don't want to be around people right now. I don't want to be singing. But you know what? Asaph had probably developed this pattern, this habit of going. Certainly he had responsibilities there as a leader of temple worship. Of course, that would encourage him to go. But at this point, he went. And I think we see here an important principle that the... Route to true contentment is communion with God and His people. And what really helps that? To be together in His house. Yes, we're not in the temple. I understand that. But God has ordained that we gather together, has He not? God has ordained that we meet together and sing together and pray together, fellowship together, and come around His Word together. Amen? There's a reason for that. And one of the things that helps us do, one of the primary things is to get our focus off of ourselves and our circumstances and onto God and what He might be doing in the midst of those circumstances. 
Oh, may we learn from Asaph's example. Because sometimes we don't feel like being here. Or we don't feel like going to a growth group or a Bible study or a prayer meeting. But you need to go. You need to go. Because that is where you will hear God's voice through His Word. That is where you were, your attention will be directed to Him in music and in prayer, conversation. And that is where your focus will be moved from what is going on in your life and what you want to what God wants from your life. Again, He has ordained everything that goes on in our situations. But He has a purpose behind it. And it's a good one. What does Romans 8.28 say? God has caused all things to work together for our own frustration and sorrow and anger. No, for our good. For His glory. He uses all of these things. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, everything in your life God uses to help you be more like His Son. In some way. Somehow. And we may not understand it. It may be years or decades before we get it. But that's how He works. Do you trust Him? Let's see if you're in the midst of some challenge or difficulty. You're struggling in your marriage. You're struggling with various kids. Or, or there's some, some other issue in your life. It's easy to just make that your focus. And you can move your attention away from where your focus needs to be. Right? It happens to all of us. I can name many times in my life where this happened to me. But oh, you know what? I get a phone call or I would come to gather with God's people and God would use that. Oh yeah. I'm telling you, when I when I travel overseas, this this comes to my mind big times like these people are so focused on God even despite of and in the midst of these incredible problems they face. They want to be together because it helps them keep their focus where it needs to be. It's not ignoring our problems, <laughs> but it's having the right Mindset and looking at them in the right way and bringing them to the right person for help. And as Asaph went to God's house, he heard the truth. He heard the truth. He was reminded of various things about God. In fact, if you go through the, the text in, the, in those verses, in verses 23 to 28, we see... Uh, he mentions numerous attributes about God. These are filled with the truth about who God is. Verses 18 and 19, he describes the inevitable judgment of the wicked. Verse 18, he recounts of God's sovereignty. Verse 20, he talks about God being just. Verse 23, he reflects on the mercies of God. Verse 23 and 4, he reflects on the grace of God. Notice there, he says in verse... 23, you have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Even verse 22, he says, my, verse 2, he says, my feet almost slipped. I almost stumbled. Almost. God kept him from going all the way. Verses 17 to 28, Asaph comes to God's house and his mind and his heart are filled with the truths of of God. This is so important. I think many of the problems we struggle with is because we have such a insufficient view of who God is. Or we don't think about him enough. We don't remember who he is. Meditate on his character and his attributes. That's why you see in the Psalms, it's very interesting. Many of the Psalms, right, display the psalmist's struggles 
Right? We see a lot of these prayers of lament and I'm going through these hard things. But do you realize many of the attributes of God we learn from the Psalms? The psalmist is often in those laments, turns his attention to, to God in the midst of those struggles. So important that we do that. Because until we get our eyes off of self and onto God, we will continue to struggle. Because the real need is not to follow some uh, steps to change our circumstances. The real need is a clear picture of Jesus. You know, I've over the years had opportunity to counsel many, many people. And what I have often found, and Bruce, you can give me an amen on this if you found it too, is oftentimes people see the problems outside of themselves. It's my spouse's fault, my children's fault. It's this situation, this job. And it's, it's, the focus is on what is outside of ourselves as the problem. And so we try to change the circumstances, change my job. In some cases, they try to change their spouse, change their children, change their circumstance, move. But you know what? There's a problem in, in that. You may change the circumstances around you, but guess what? You still bring the same you to that new situation. You haven't changed the right thing. You haven't focused on the right thing. The problem is ourselves and our need to focus on the right things. Notice here, look with me at verse 25. Asaph's visit to the sanctuary couldn't just be a one-time event. You know, I'm feeling down today. I guess I better go to church. Well, no, it needs to be an ongoing habit, pattern of our lives. Not only are we to move our focus to God, but also maintain our focus on God. And the key to lasting contentment is to stay near to Him. We see this in Asaph's wonderful prayer in verse 25. Look there with me. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Wow, such a beautifully written statement, isn't it? So much to like, you know, sew that together and put it on a little frame and put it in our house. I think someone's done that. This is a great passage to have somewhere in your house framed. Because it it expresses that true commitment comes from looking at the right object. True contentment, I mean, sorry. And again, in God's sanctuary, Asaph got a glimpse of God's beauty and his wonder and his majesty. And he couldn't take his eyes off of him. Whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Puritan pastor Richard Baxter said this about the discontent person. He said, ask your hearts seriously whether God and Christ be enough for them or not. If God be not enough for you, you will never have enough. Did not Jesus say, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me for drink? Did he not say, I am the bread of life that comes down from heaven? If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever Didn't Jesus say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Psalm 16, verse 11 says of Christ, in his presence is fullness of joy. In his right hand, there are pleasures forever. Is Christ your living water? Is he your bread of life? 
Is He your rest? Is He your greatest treasure? Is Jesus enough for you? Listen, the world will keep you wanting, but Christ will keep you filled. To find true peace and contentment in this life, you must have Jesus. And you must know Him and you must commune with Him and walk with Him by His grace. Here's where I need to ask. Have you made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ? Have you truly put your trust in Him? Is He, have you gone to Him as a sinner in need of a Savior? And one of the ways you can know this is by examining how do you deal with the struggles and problems with life? Are you always turning to something else or to Christ? Who's the first person you think of when something bad has happened? Where's the first place you go? Who is it you ultimately trust in? Or what is it you ultimately trust in? Those are good indicators of what your heart worships. Have you truly put your trust in Christ? And I'm not saying this is easy. That's why He's given us one another to help. But is the desire of your heart, I don't know what to do in this situation. I don't know how to get out of this. I feel terrible. I'm unhappy. I'm discouraged. God, help me. I have nowhere else to turn. Have you put your trust in Him? The Bible says, you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And when Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest, He didn't just mean at the beginning. That's a permanent rest. That's a permanent peace and contentment that only He can give. Only He can give. When He's talking about the Prince of Peace, not just that Jesus makes peace as far as conflict is concerned, but also peace within our own hearts. You are a follower of Jesus Christ. If you have truly put your trust in Him, if you've desired to turn from your sin and follow Christ, you've recognized that He's the only one that can save you from your sins, but yet maybe still struggle with discontentment. Look again at how Asaph ends this psalm. Look at the last line. The last verse, excuse me. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. Staying near to God. Staying near to Christ in His Word. Staying near to Christ in prayer. Staying near to Christ in fellowshipping with His people. Staying near to Christ in giving Him praise. Staying near to Christ by confessing your sins. Staying near to Christ by being in a discipleship relationship with another mature believer who can give input in your life. Staying near to Christ by trusting Him and obeying Him. The world will leave you wanting, but Christ will keep you filled. You know, Pakistan a few months ago experienced the worst flooding they've seen in modern history in that country. 30 million people lost their homes. 30 million. In one particular region where uh, this pastor, Pastor Morris, that I work with there, he, he does ministry in a particular region and he, he went there. Um, there are many believers, 20-something churches have been planted there and these believers had lost everything because their homes were often mud huts or just things that could not. So they got washed away. They lost their clothing, their food, everything. 
Well, Morris told me about when he visited them recently, and he came, and as he was coming to the village, he could hear singing. People were singing praises to God, fellowshipping together, and, and he asked one of the pastors there, he said, how can you be singing? You've lost everything. And I mean, literally, you look around, and it's like mud. That's it. <laughs> and the pastor said this, no, we have not lost everything because we have Christ. If we lose Christ, we've lost everything. Everything will leave you wanting. Only Jesus will keep you filled. Pray. Oh Lord, uh, come to you, at least I know for myself, uh, times of my struggles with contentment and complaining and Lord, not, things not being the way I want. Lord, been blaming things around me for my struggle. And Lord, we see here just a great important reminder and truth that, that the struggle of discontentment